Well, good evening. Um, I'm Robert Wade. I am a professor of political economy here at the LSE. Um, it's my pleasure this evening to introduce Ruchia Sharma. Um, he is a managing director at Morgan Stanley um, and is specifically head of its global emerging markets equity team based in New York City. Um, alongside his day job at Morgan Stanley, um, he's also a journalist, a columnist. Um, he used to write a regular column for Newsweek and uh, then that was put aside because of the writing of the book. But he does still write for the Indian newspaper, The Economic Times, and he publishes in the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and the New York Times. This evening he's going to uh, speak to some of the main arguments of this new book, um, Breakout Nations in Pursuit of the Next Economic Miracles which has just been published by Alan Lane. <clears throat> Let me say something about the book by way of introduction. The first thing to say about it is that it is a great read. The style combines vivid anecdotes and striking statistics with a lightness of touch so as to make it almost a page-turner, almost something for your bedside. Um, one of the chapters, for example, is called, quote, After the Ecstasy, comma, the Laundry, which happens to be a Buddhist proverb. And one of the many striking statistics is that China is identified as the world's largest economy, the world's largest economy, by no less than 52% of Americans, according to a 2011 Gallup poll which is an astonishing and also very worrying misperception. The fact of the matter is that China's GDP is about one-third that of the United States, and its average income is about one-tenth that of the U.S. And, of course, it's nowhere in sight of the U.S. in terms of innovation. The book is organized as a series of forecasts for roughly, uh, or going out to roughly a decade ahead, um, a forecast about the prospects for growth and prosperity of major economies that we call the emerging market economies, including China, India, Brazil, Mexico, Russia, Eastern Europe, Turkey, South Korea and Taiwan, South Africa, and as though those were not enough, even some more. One of its main themes is that the boom of the 2000s, or to be more exact, the short boom between 2003 and 2007, induced a quite false homogenization of investors and also politicians and also many economists thinking about emerging markets, sort of homogenization about their prospects based on the premise that these economies are going to go on growing around f 6 to 9% a year into the indefinite future. The book argues that this just won't happen because the boom was based on a quite unsustainable mechanism, a very loose monetary policy of the US Central Bank under Alan Greenspan, um, surging commodity prices thanks to China's rapid growth, also the financialization of commodity markets in which they became the subject of speculate, uh, speculation. Um, and that's simply not sustainable. 
So over the next decade or so, we will see, the book argues, much more variation in growth performances between countries, also much shorter business cycles, and no more happy, clappy talk about the great moderation. And finally, we will see a significant fall, not an increase, a fall in commodity prices, which of course is bad news for uh, commodity exporters who include many emerging market economies. The book identifies the breakout nations in a particular way, and it's worth just describing this before Russia begins. Um, the breakout nations are those that are most likely to exceed investors, politicians, economists, growth expectations for countries in their income category. And that qualification in their income category is really important. The underlying, underlying idea is that investors and others um, expect countries with lower average income to grow faster and countries with higher average income to grow slower. So the expected normal growth rate for low-income countries, for countries, for example, with average income between 5,000 and 10,000 US dollars a year, is 5% a year or a bit more, whereas the expected normal rate for countries in the next highest income category, that is between 10,000 and 15,000 US dollars a year, is lower, that is about 4%. And then going further up the income scale, the normal for countries between 20 and 25,000 is lower again, namely 3 to 4% a year. And that then uh, leads to the identification as of the breakout countries in each income category as the ones which are most likely to exceed those uh, normally expected growth rates. And then the book um, examines many emerging market economies to predict which ones are likely to become the breakout nations. However, the book also has quite a lot to say um, en route uh, about the United States. And actually, it makes the argument that over the next decade or so, the US will remain by far the most innovative economy in the world, and also, partly for that reason, the most prosperous. Just one final word of caution. Um, it's worth bearing in mind, in, it, in the context of forecasts or predictions, that the psychologist Philip Tetlock persuaded in 1984 more than 280 professional forecasters in the economic and political domains to make forecasts for 20 years ahead in 2004. And then in 2004, he analyzed their forecasts and he concluded that their forecasts or their predictions were no more accurate than, quote, dart-throwing chimpanzees <laughs> and less accurate than simple computer algorithms. And what's more, he found that the higher the media profile of the forecasters, the less accurate were their forecasts. And also, it's worth noting that the psychologist Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics a few years ago, found from his research that professional wealth management advisors um, gave advice which is no more accurate, he concluded, than throwing dice. Well, with those words of caution, um, Mr. Sharma will speak for roughly 45 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up for 
comments and questions. And we will finish not one minute later than eight o'clock, not least because an important event, namely a football match, is beginning <laughs> uh, at that time. But also the other important event beginning after we finish is the book signing outside, um, where you can buy a discounted copy for 25 for only 25 pounds. As I said, it is a great read. So, um, Rashia, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Wade. Um, I'm really happy that you began, uh, or that like, you ended your note by uh, that uh, interesting observations about forecasts, because that's how I literally begin the book, uh, by saying that uh, the old rule of forecasting used to be that you make as many forecasts as possible, and you remind people when you're right. The, the new pe uh, rule of forecasting now is that you forecast so far out in the future that neither you nor I will be held accountable for those forecasts. <laughs> so I think that that's really become the very popular thing over the past few decades, which is, uh, you know, which is that, um, or, the, or the recent fad, I'd say, over the past decade, which is these fancy forecasts on how the world will be in 2030 and 2050, uh, you know, like by 2030, how China will be the world's largest economy, by 2050, India will be the world's largest economy after China, and also read some fancy forecasts the other day on how Nigeria by 2050 would be among the top 10 economies in the world as well. <laughs> now, all this is basically straight line extrapolation which is going on, which is that, uh, you know, like a country's economic size today is X, because of its demographics, it'll grow by Y, and so by, you know, like in 20, 30 years from now, it'll be uh, at some place called Z. And I think that that, that, uh, that is exactly the kind of stuff that I've tried to avoid doing in this book, which is not to, you know, like go out forecasting so much out in the future about what's going to happen in the world, but for me, the destination is not as important as the journey. It's the journey here, which is of traveling through all these various uh, emerging markets of being on the ground. I try and spend one week a month in each of these emerging markets. And, and I've tried to put together some sort of an economic travelogue. And for me, it's about, at the end, of course, I come up with some conclusions about which countries I think will do well and which will not. But more looking over the next three to five years, because I find that's the sort of cycle on which most people are evaluated uh, in terms of I know as an investor, that's what our clients have a look at. That's the kind of return they look at. Politicians, typically, the cycle that they are evaluated in most countries is about three to five years. Similarly, business people also are evaluated on, on, on their three to five year strategic plans. I would love to sort of you know, uh, engage in this sort of uh, futurology where I can tell you about how the world will be in 2030, 2040, but I find that's an intellectually dishonest exercise almost. Because, uh, as I said, that, I mean, uh, that if I could find clients like that who would give me money and say, we'll come and check your performance in 2030, I'd be a, a really happy person. But that just doesn't happen yeah, in the real world. It's much more of a, it's much more, as I said, like a three to five year maximum, like you can go out, is a decade. But more than that, what, uh, the whole point here is to sort of take you through this journey of various emerging markets. As I was, uh, you know, like um, with the, um, one of the senior editors at, at the Financial Times uh, this afternoon. And he was you know, trying to you know, like, uh, speak with me about uh, writing something for them. And one thing he said is that, thank God you know, that, you know, that we have some uh, 
you know, people like you who, who are writers, because the thing with financial analysts is that they are very smart. And I know that there are many people out there who are obviously smarter than I am. But I find that the, big, the biggest problem our community has is to communicate that to the outside world, that we talk in Excel spreadsheets, we talk in ratios, uh, we talk in quantitative terms. But the ability to communicate that, I think, remains a bit limited uh, and so like a bit dense. So that's what he was telling me, that how he struggles to sort of you know, uh, get pieces from people in the financial community because of the uh, conversion rate. Um, into common lingo like is a bit limited. But for me, the mantra has always been that if you have not understood something well, you can't explain it well uh, or explain it simply. So I mean, I think that simple arguments are distilled from a lot of analysis, not, not out of any simple observations. And so that's been my entire sort of look out here. So in terms of this book, um, as um, Professor Wade mentioned here, that I've been a uh, writer for as long as I've been an investor. I started writing just out of school, uh, just out of high school rather, in 1991. Uh, that was my only way uh, back in India those days of being able to engage in, um, in the world of finance because there's no way I could run money at that age. And in India, like I, uh, I came up with this idea at that age that I wanted to write about what's happening in global markets. And we were so insulated from the rest of the world but we had, you know, like we were only just opening up in India back those days to the outside world. The editors at the newspaper said, "Fine, let him do it. Who cares? You know, like he'll write some column, you know, called Forex Watch is what I would end up writing those days back in India. He'll write it. Who really cares? It's some, it's some little sideshow. So that's how like it, it began. But that's a discipline that I, that I kept to even I, uh, even after I started my professional investing career back in 1994 and with Morgan Stanley in 1996." So um, my typical style would be to write a column a week. And at Newsweek, what I would try and do is that once I would visit an emerging market after spending a week there, I would end up writing on that emerging market after having spent that week there. And I found that that was a very powerful discipline because no matter how much you end up sort of uh, researching on the ground, when you're actually putting your thought to paper, it's, it's a different exercise. One, you have to be much more sure about your facts and figures and Secondly, that you have to understand the subject really well to, be ex to explain it to a broad audience, which a publication such as Newsweek aims to reach out to. So that was the idea that I persisted yeah, for that for a decade. Uh, but then a couple of things happened in, in 2010 um, that I decided that I want to write this book. Uh, every journalist or every writer thinks that he or she has a book in him. That's, that's, that's something that they always think. The, the idea is as to when you actually sort of have the courage to write that book because to write this book is about 100,000 words. The average column that I've, I've been used to writing is about 1,000 words. So like how do you sort of muster up the courage to do like a project like this? And for me, it's about coming up with a big idea. That I needed a big idea. I always had travel observations, always sort of knew that I could fit in, but what is the big idea? Then a couple of things happened to me in like 2010, a couple of anecdotes in fact, which is when I decided that I've really got to sort of put this down all into a, all into a book. Um, I was back in, in um, I still recall, uh, I go back to India frequently, although I'm based in New York, and I was back in India in, in around October, November of 2010. The flows into emerging markets were absolutely off the charts that year, that they had they'd gone through the crisis of 2008, saw massive capital outflows, but 2009 onwards, the flows were coming back in, in a huge way. 
back then. And 2010 was a record year for capital inflows. And countries like India and all were the big beneficiaries of that, of that big inflow. You know, the, uh, so here I was back in India then, and uh, there was a big uh, party invite that I got, uh, uh, the, that I received, and I was roped into going to like, you know, this party. In Delhi, there are these uh, very palatial homes on the outskirts of Delhi uh, that are called farmhouses. The farmers of Delhi have, lo have long left, but these farmhouses still remain. And they're, you know, like these concessional sort of pieces of land that, that people have acquired out there. And, then there, and, and now they've become the playground for the uh, rich and the famous. And there are, you know, like really fancy structures out there, you know, like water fountains. And this one I went to had a railroad running through it in terms of the whole thing. So I went to this party, and there were all these people out there uh, milling about with, uh, and the valets were juggling Bentleys and Maybachs and all that sort of fancy stuff was going on there. Um, and inside, like, you, know, you know, like the music was beating loud and the, sh and, and the chefs had been flown in from various places for this, for this special party. And these things are quite sort of common out there. Um, and then I, I got into a conversation with a young kid uh, and a typical, what I call, uh, Delhi type sometimes, which is that he was you know, like in this tight black sort of T-shirt with you know hair gel, 25 year old. Um, he, uh, his sort of claim to fame was that he had worked for his uh, for his father, uh, or that's what he was doing. His father was an ex you know, was an exporter. Often you know like I don't quite know what they export, but they're supposed to be an exporter, and and that's how they've made their wealth. So I got into, like, into a conversation with him, and he was trying to suss, you know, suss me out that who am I, figure out. And then he you know, like, pretty quickly sort of figured out that I'm like an investor visiting India in search of fresh investment opportunities. So he sort of looks at me and shrugs, my shoulder, uh, you know, shrugs his shoulder and, and goes, where else will the money go? You know, this sort of real cocky uh, attitude, overconfidence, that the West is in decline. Where else does the money go? It's got to come to you. It's uh, it's got to come here. So therefore, you are here looking for like opportunities, you know. So it's like uh, that's the way it is, and and you know that that sort of remark really stayed with me, uh, which is that I left the party shortly after midnight, and as is custom in Delhi, that dinner had not been served till then, because people were too busy drinking and uh, and stuff. But I mean, I had, I had enough of it. But this remark stayed with me, that that because in. Uh, my investing career is anything that I've learned, which is that you have to always be cynical of trends once they are uh, very widely accepted. Now, once again, going back to that point about you know that the more the forecasts get played in the media, the more dangerous it is because the less likely it's is likely to be true. You know, like it's true, and I have, um, and I have a sort of section in the book which talks about the contrarian value of the cover stories of the Economist. Uh, which is that if you look at the cover stories of The Economist over the past 10, 15 years, you'll find that whenever there's a very bold statement on the cover, you can be pretty sure that the trend is coming to an end. And, 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 and this goes back. Like, you know, like in, back in 98, the most famous cover story that, it, that they did was when the price of oil was at $10, there was a cover story which went, uh, here comes $5 oil. Then like a couple of years later, they did a, they did a story which were, you know, like on Africa that said the hopeless continent. Right, and then, like in the subsequent decades, six of the fastest, uh, ten fastest growing economies were from Africa, and we were getting books also, like uh, as late as you know, like 2006, 2007, about how Africa was a lost continent, and then, like the and the Economist, then early this year has a cover on Africa rising, 
you know, right, in terms of just after a decade of this amazing success. So I think you know, there is this contrarian sort of value, you know, like to these very bold assertions which are made, which are very popular, and sort of make it to the cover stories of economists, or at times when you sort of uh, meet people who make these very bold assertions to you. So this kid statement stayed with me. Where else will the money go? Because you know that once people think that money is going to go in only one direction, it never sort of transpires that way. Then another thing happened around the same time, which is that which is that um, I had uh, gone to Russia, and I was invited there uh, by uh, at this conference to make a presentation uh, to Putin, and 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 Putin there was uh, had asked for one large investor to make a presentation to him about what exactly is is happening in in like Russia, and so my name was proposed, and he said fine. So like here I was making a presentation to Putin, and I didn't quite realize what a big big occasion this would be because he was on stage. I was making the presentation as part of this conference, and it was apparently being televised live across all the channels. So I made the presentation as an investor. I'm used to speaking my mind because I don't you know like I don't care about networking or doing the other stuff. I just sort of you know see where the opportunities are, and I speak my mind. So here I am, to, you know, trying to sort of you know make this presentation to him, and it was a pretty blunt presentation, which is that listen, what worked for you, like ten years ago, doesn't work anymore. In terms of you know, ten years ago, your your per capita income was 50, you know like two thousand dollars or something. You could get away with lots of mistakes. Today you're at 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 twelve thousand dollars. If you want to be rich, a rich country, a rich country makes rich goods. So you know, let's uh, so you know, don't don't just depend on oil, but depend on doing much more than that. That you got to sort of diversify. Uh, and stuff, and I, you know, so like it was a pretty blunt presentation that I that I made out there. He was okay about it, and that he seemed to be taking notes down and stuff. I was impressed. But the next day, the media really got after me, which is that like the you know like it's controlled by the Kremlin, and the sort of again the statement in the media was you know that you know that you know like who's this guy who's come here and spoiled the party, you know, making such a presentation, and like the attitude was that you know we don't need your money. That was a sort of attitude, almost as if sort of I was sort of you know like making a uh, making a case there about investing in Russia or 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 not making a case, and and the attitude of the press was that you know like who you know like who needs your money? So again, you know, it's like all this stuff is building up in me that I'm seeing these signs of overconfidence of the fact that these countries had done remarkably well for a decade, and all of a sudden they thought that uh, that you know that it was all about them. It was all about the fact that it was their God-given right now to sort of grow and to and to converge with the um, with the Western world, and the, and the Putin's shift in attitude was also captured by uh, an interview that I did for uh, with um, President Bush shortly thereafter for uh, at a client conference of ours, and I asked you know, President Bush about his views on 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 Putin that uh, that you know what happened as far as Putin's concerned. Uh, into, uh, because you had, after all, uh, said in a speech very famously about how he, uh, you know, that you uh, looked him in his eye and he was a friend, and I said, you know, you know, that you know, do you feel the same way about him? Then he told me about how his view on Putin had sort of changed, changed over time. Uh, that uh, and and he gave me this anecdote again, which was uh, I found really sort of fascinating. He says that when um, Putin first came to the White House back in the early 2000s. Uh, I, I, introduced, uh, I introduced him to my dog, you know, Barney. So, you know, you know like the small sort of dog fl fl floating about. Putin looked at the dog, etc. Didn't really say much. 
He says, a few years later, I went to Moscow at the peak of the boom in 2007, 2008, whatever. And, and, and you know, Putin uh, took him to his Dhaka and asked, you know, and then Putin asked Bush, do you want to see my dog? So like, you know, Putin's like, you know, so like, so like, you know, Bush is fine, I'll see your dog. And out comes this big dog. And then like, you know, Putin points out, Putin points out to him and uh, to the dog and says, bigger, better, stronger. <laughs> right? So, the, so this was the kind of one-upmanship in terms of, you know, like how Putin's confidence had changed that, he, you know, here he's, you know, like showing off his dog as being this comparative sort of, you know, uh, study in terms of, you know, compared to, compared to Bush. So all this was sort of happening at the same time. And this is what sort of inspired me then that I've got to put this down because I had my big idea. And my big idea was that I'd done emerging markets for a long period of time. And most people who do emerging markets or look at this asset class always want to sort of uh, sell you, or it's very easy to like sell you a very bullish story, right? Because that's what we're all trying to do, which is that we all want a market, we want to sell this, you know, like this bullish story. But as an investor and as someone who'd been a writer for a long period of time, uh, uh, I'm just interested like in finding out, you know, I, mean, I mean, like the real story. That's what really inspires me and looking for the flaw in the conventional wisdom because you know the conventional wisdom over a period of time goes wrong. And so if you look at economic history, uh, what it shows you is that this game of economic development is really one like snakes and ladders, which is that there are 180-odd economies today tracked by the IMF. Only 35 are developed economies. All the other economies are either emerging markets or some are called even frontier markets in our, in our sort of lingo. And what this tells you really is that very few economic uh, success stories are sustained over time. That you end up getting uh, bouts of growth, but they don't really uh, sustain over time. So it's like a game of snakes and ladders that you sort of you know, get lucky at times, you climb a ladder up, but you get bitten by a snake, you come all the way down, you start all over again, but the straight line where you go from zero to 100 just doesn't exist. Uh, but yet that's the basis of many forecasts, which is extrapolation. This is what's happened. They see the trend, but they don't see any of the snakes, and they sort of start uh, dreaming of uh, the fact that how, you know, like how they're going to get to the top without much of an effort. But it just, it, it just doesn't work out that way. As I mentioned, for most economies in the world, it's not worked out that way. And so that's the truth about emerging markets as well. So we looked at this sort of study, um, which we did uh, on our own. Yeah research that in any particular decade, about one-third of economies are able to grow at a rate of more than 5%, about one-third. The probability that those one-third economies will be able to grow at a rate of more than 5% on, on an average annual basis for a second decade fall to 1 by 4. By the third decade, they fall to 1 by 10. Only six economies in the world have been able to grow at a rate of 5% or more on an average annual basis for four decades in a row, and only two for five decades in a row. And those two that were able to grow at five decades in a row were Korea and Taiwan. And otherwise, the uh, history is littered with examples of countries that did very well in one decade, but just faded away after that. Like the big stars, if you look at the big economic stars of the 1950s and 60s, they were Iran, Iraq, Yemen. Those are the economies that used to be the stars. The IMF and World Bank sort of forecast back in the 1960s that the next East Asian economic tigers would be Philippines, Burma, and Sri Lanka. 
right? So that, uh, and we know what happened to the, that forecast. And, and, and so if you look at the case of the other big case is Brazil, that Brazil used to grow like China back in the 1960s. Its growth rate used to be nearly double digits uh, for that decade. But they made so many mistakes after that from you know, like a premature creation of a welfare state, far too much government spending, and they're still paying the price for it. That even last decade, which was the best decade for Brazil in a long while, their average economic growth rate was, you know, was still only about 4%. Uh, now, of course, they made a lot of other progress on inflation and other things, but it, but it shows you as to what's the baggage that they're carrying, that even in the midst of a boom, their average economic growth rate was about 4% or so. So that's the history of economic development, that there are very few economic success stories that are able to sustain over time. And so what my, and my point really was that, uh, that he, here we are, uh, despite this history, we are making all these forecasts now about, uh, about BRICS, about you know, what share of the global economy they will be, as if they, have, as if there's, you know, they all have something in common. And then, and then like this new fad for acronyms, like a, like, like a question I got asked today in one of my interviews uh, with a radio station, that what do you think of civets? Right, because you know, that's the new acronym that, that someone's come up with, which, which captures you know, like economies such as uh, you know, like Colombia, Indonesia, Vietnam, basically anything, you know, which is that anything, which makes a, anything you know, which makes a cute acronym, you like bunch it together and it becomes a marketing fad. That you be, you know, like, I mean, like you toss it out there. So you talk about brick, not enough, you talk about bricks then, then you, not enough, you talk about N11, you speak about, you speak about, you, you speak about then now civets. And this really is because, like over the previous decade, every single emerging market did well. It was a unique decade, uh, as I mentioned, that every single emerging market did well. And the peak year was 2007, when only three economies in the entire uh, uh, universe contracted. And those three were Fiji, Zimbabwe, and Congo. Who cares, right? So that was the, that was the sort of theme of the last of the last decade, and the peak year 2007, only three economies contracted. Whereas, if you look at the long-term economic history in any year, about 20% of economies typically register a negative GDP growth rate. But such was the uniformity of the boom over the previous decade that no emerging market was really left behind. Everyone did well. And in that sort of environment, you can coin anything, right? You're just packaging. It's all about packaging, that you just package a few countries together, cute acronym, it sells well, market it, and, like, and, and it sticks. But the reason why every emerging market did well last decade were for some very unique factors. One of them was the 1980s and 1990s were really a very bad time for emerging markets. They were, they were uh, beset by a lot of crises, like you remember the one in, in Mexico in 94, the East Asian crisis in 97, the Russian crisis in 98. There were a whole bunch of economic crises out there. So the average growth rate of emerging markets in the, in the 80s and 90s was just 3.5%. And that's when I remember starting my career in, uh, in the, in the mid-1990s, and nobody wanted to talk about emerging markets as an asset <laughs> class by the end of that decade because it was so, uh, it was so bad, like the going. And I still recall this period where, where, you know, where in 2000, like if you had to market an emerging market fund, it was very difficult to do it. So one of my colleagues uh, decided that he's going to market the fund by calling it emerging markets because the tech boom was going on, and he wanted to sort of ride the wave of the tech boom because you couldn't sell emerging markets on their own. 
So, you know, like you called it emerging markets because, you know, like you're trying to showcase that even emerging markets can do technology, right? So that was the whole idea of it. And then I, and then like in two, you know, by, by 2005, the boom had become such, you know, because of this uh, amazing amount of global liquidity that, you know, that any man and his dog could sell an emerging market fund. And then by 2010, even the man was not required, right? So you just put the dog out there and you're fine. You're like, you will fly. So I, so, so I think that is what the sort of, uh, that's the sort of stage that we reached at by, by 2010. But this was an exceptional period. Every single emerging market did, did well. And it was a catch up for very poor performance in the 80s and 90s. The growth rate of emerging markets doubled from an average of 3.5% in 80s and 90s to more than 7.5% in this 03 to 07 period. And also the, the long-term average for emerging market growth rates, even including the last decade, works out to about 5% or so. And, and the other reason that it did well, I said, is because the consumer in the West, in the US, et cetera, was very strong. So they were, so they were importing a lot of goods from, from many of these developing countries. Liquidity was very easy. It was inflating all sorts of bubbles across the world. Uh, and you had this you know, like period for catch-up because emerging markets had cleaned up their balance sheet after the crises of, of the late 1990s. So you, you had some potential for catch-up to take place. Now, my, my, so um, after the 2008-2009 crisis, what we're seeing is that many emerging markets are now slowing down, that growth rates are coming off. Brazil last year recorded a growth rate of under 3%. And then you had Russia, you know, where the growth rate has basically been half the average of what it was in the previous decade. Previous decade's average was about 7%. Now it's running at about close to 4% or so in the midst of a commodity boom. And then we have the case of China, where after growing at 10% for three decades, what we're seeing in China today is that it is no longer being able to grow as quickly as 10%, but a lot of people are still clinging on to the hope that 8% can still come in China, which is you know, quite um, healthy. And my point is that China now has become a middle-income country. And when a country becomes a middle-income country, its capacity to, uh, to grow very quickly reduces. It's almost like you become middle-aged. And when you're middle-aged, you can't sprint as quickly as when you were young. And that's exactly where China today is, that if you look at the other leading examples of the big success stories, uh, you know, forget the failures. I'm talking about the gold medalists of growth, such as Korea, Taiwan, Japan in the 1970s, at, at, a, at a per capita income level of around $6,000, which is where China is today, growth definitively began to slow down. Because there just is less scope for you to grow from a much higher base, and you've used up a lot of the unproductive resources in the economy. Now, now this is a very different concept than the popular economic uh, theory of a middle-income trap. A middle-income trap is a very loose concept which, you know, which suggests that you stop converging completely with the developed world. Uh, that is like a recipe for almost disaster. That, you know, there's no convergence going on, and the World Bank identifies a whole bunch of countries which have gone through the middle-income trap, including Brazil, Mexico, Malaysia, etc. That's what my uh, point here. This is a new concept that I call middle-income deceleration, which is that you, that you keep converging with the developed world, but you do it at a slower pace. And this is what happened to the most successful economies, not the ones which failed at middle income. And my point is that China today is virtually at that same stage. And yet the forecasts, if you look at for China, 
uh, are all sort of fairly blue sky. Like the IMF came out with their five-year forecast, and they have ch uh, uh, last month, uh, and they have China growing at above eight percent for the next five years. And and when you have those kind of forecasts, it obviously leads to a lot of sort of you know like paranoia, but it you know like this incredible awe that you know that you know th that. Uh, the Chinese economy is a command and control economy. They can do whatever they feel like. They'll achieve whatever targets they want. So we, so we just sort of think that if they say they're going to grow at eight and like eight and a half percent, that's what they will achieve. But even they have been lowering their targets down to seven and a half percent or so. But the world still believes that China is going to grow at above eight percent for the next five years. And the current popular fad is to figure out when the Chinese economy will overtake the U.S. economy as the world's largest economy. Most Americans think that's already happened. I don't know whether that's, you know, like a paranoia or a statement on, you know, middle America. I'm not quite sure, but, uh, you know, but, but they all think that that is already sort of, you know, like happened. But this is typical of America that they always get uh, sort of caught up in this sort of paranoia and maybe that's why they do well because, you know, like, like in the 80s, they all thought that Japan was about to sort of gobble up the whole of America. Those famous stories that you'll remember about how you know, the, uh, the Imperial Palace in Tokyo was valued at more than the whole of California. And then, you know, then we had these sort of things back in the 1970s where the CIA uh, would present these charts from economists such as Paul Samuelson showing as to when the USSR was ab about to overtake America as the world's largest economy. So you know, uh, this is typical in terms of what happens in terms of, you know, when, you know, when um, as George Orwell said, that uh, whoever is winning at the moment appears to be invincible. So when you're top of your game, you think that this is, uh, that this is going on, you think that uh, no wrong can be done. And, and so similarly today, like all the economists think that China can never have a business cycle. There is no talk of a business cycle in China. That, you know, like it's all about steady growth of 8% for the next five years. That's the solid consensus out there. Soft landing is the most... Uh, uh, repeated term on on Google when it comes to the Chinese economy these days. So I think that the, uh, uh, my point here is that as I go around the world and I see about what's going on in these various economies, I come to the, the same conclusion as we do from, uh, from economic history, which is that things are slowing down. And from now onwards, when you talk about emerging markets, you've got to speak about the winners and the losers. There will be winners and losers this decade of easy money where the rising tide lifts all boats is just not going to come back anytime soon. Uh, yeah, because, uh, because the availability of capital is not going to be as easy as it used to be. So people ask me this question that you know, there's a huge wall of money out there, central banks are running very easy mo uh, money policies, where will the money go? And my point here is that, you know, that, the, the, that the money I mean, has to also be channeled so the banks and the financial institutions in the West, which lent so aggressively to uh, these emerging markets, are no longer going to be able to do so. And we're seeing signs of that, that they're being much more cautious. So bank lending to emerging markets from these countries has come down. Similarly, the growth in, in the developed world has come off. And many of these economies are still export-oriented economies, which are relying on demand from the developed world to be able to grow. And, and that contribution to growth has uh, is, is bound to decline. So uh, that's what's happened as far as the world is concerned over the past decade. Question is that, like, as we go through then, which are going to be the breakout nations and what is it that I try and look for in a country as I'm traveling to figure out 
you know, what would be a breakout nation. The two metrics for a breakout nation for me, one is, is expectations. I think that especially when you're an investor, you tend to get much more attuned to this aspect. But I think life is all about expectations. So I think expectations are key. So um, one thing people ask me again is that, uh, what's the big deal? If the Indian economy grows at 6%, uh, that's still a very good growth rate. And yeah, because that's still thrice as fast as what, as what the Western world is going to grow at. But here expectations are key, that last year the Indian economy's growth rate dipped from uh, nearly 9% in the previous year to just below 7%. And that really, and what we ended up getting were two things. One, a, a huge bear market in Indian stocks, where they declined by more than 30% in dollar terms. And the second thing we got was that the fiscal situation got out of hand, in terms of the fiscal finances, et cetera, got, you know, got out of hand. And I think that uh, that's what happens in terms of expectations. So same thing with China. That if the Chinese economy were to slow, let's say, over the coming year to a growth rate of 6% or 6 or 7%, that would, have a, uh, that would really send a rude shock to many people, especially the commodity-dependent economies, because they are relying on China to grow at above 8% for, and, and for them to keep investing at a very aggressive pace uh, uh, in their infrastructure. And if they slow down, especially as it's led by infrastructure and by exports not doing as well as they were doing in the previous decade because the demand for exports is not that high and the demand to build new sort of infrastructure is not that high, that could have grave implications for a lot of the commodity uh, exporting economies. And so uh, a growth rate of China of 6 7% over the next two, three years, a slowdown like that, will feel a bit uh, hard to begin with. So therefore, expectations are key. So when I try and come up with breakout nations, expectations are key. The second aspect of a, of a breakout nation for me is per capita income level, which is that if a country like India is growing at a pace of, let's say, 4 to 5%, that feels like a mini depression because its per capita income is only $1,500 and people expect a lot more out of it. And when a poor country grows at that pace, it just is not enough to, live, to lift enough people out of poverty. On the other hand, if a country like Korea with a per capita income of more than $20,000 grows at 4 to 5%, that feels like a true breakout. That feels as if a, a boom is going on in Korea. So I think that the two most important metrics when I try and come up with this breakout nations is one, expectations, and two, per capita income levels. When you're able to grow above what consensus expectations are, that gives you a shot of, of, of being a breakout nation because you feel as if you're doing something here which is different and you're sort of beating expectations. And two is in terms of the per capita income level, that you need to grow above your peer group in your peer group uh, in terms of the averages. So I, so I mean like a country like Thailand with a per capita income of, of, of like $5,000 needs to grow at, at least 5% like to feel as if it's making solid economic progress. Whereas the higher you are up the per capita income curve, the less uh, you need to grow at a very rapid pace. So when I look at the world and I travel around, my entire idea was to come up with some rules of the road, which is that uh, some accessible ways to figure out which countries are doing well and, and which are not. So one sort of more fun one that I came out with was something called a Four Seasons Index, which is that uh, luckily as I get to travel the world, I get to stay very often in good hotels. And the Four Seasons is, is considered often the benchmark for that. And it just struck me that you know, we all economists spend a lot of time constructing fancy models, RER, inflation adjusted, 
you know, normal versus real, you know, what's the base here, you know, I mean, like, we spend a lot of time sort of looking at that. And yet, if you look at the four seasons hotel room rates across the world, they pretty much tell you which countries are competitive and which are not competitive. So, uh, I mean, if you want to go to Brazil, uh, to, uh, and you want to stay at one of the high-end hotels in Rio, they don't have a four seasons, but they got sort of like high-end hotels, you're paying up to close to $1,000 a night. Um, on the other hand, if you go to Southeast Asia and you, and you stay in a, I mean, like in a four season hotel in a Thailand or in Indonesia or in a, or in a, or in a Philippines, you're paying about two to three hundred dollars a night. And, and to me, like the, uh, uh, the picture here basically is that the cheaper the currency, the more competitive it is. And as an investor, also, you want to invest in places where you think the currency has got upside, not downside. So, like, the problem in Brazil today is that the currency is so uncompetitive today that they are being forced to import everything. There is no incentive to produce at home. So like, I mean, like in, in New York, if you ever travel there, uh, what you'll find is that you go to any high-end hotels in New York, and you have dedicated Portuguese-speaking concierges, because you've got Brazilians sort of uh, swamping uh, uh, New York City for shopping. And I, and I see it like in my team too, that you know, like on a Friday afternoon, I mean, I've got a team from across the world, uh, and, and if they, and they come to New York for some meeting, et cetera, on a Friday afternoon at lunchtime, nobody's in office because they're all busy out shopping, right? From, a, I mean, from across the world. Because the US currency today is super competitive. It is, it is really cheap. And that's what sort of gives me some optimism as far as the US is concerned. That the currency is really cheap. And so are the currencies of other countries that I see in Southeast Asia, some countries in Eastern Europe, such as Poland, I find the currency to be very competitive. On the other hand, the currencies of these commodity-backed uh, countries, such as uh, Brazil, Russia, or even in Argentina, that, I mean, look at the four seasons rates in all these hotels, they are far above the average rates of even the developed world. And so that, to me, is like a warning sign that, that you know, these countries are really expensive and not worth doing business in. The other, point, the other sort of metric that I, uh, I came up with is, is something called the Billionaire's Index which is that you know, Forbes created this index like, to celebrate wealth and, and you know, like to, uh, I mean, for all the billionaires to see as to how rich they are you know, versus, uh, you know, versus each other. And for all of us to draw some vicarious pleasure through the lifestyles of these billionaires and how much wealth that they had created. But uh, like I find a, a lot of meaning in this index. Uh, that, uh, so so I, like, I, I created like an index which looks at the wealth of billionaires across the world and what share of the wealth do they have in the total economy um, and what is the churn rate and, and where is the new wealth coming from. And I find that this can be very instructive to tell you about a country's economic development. I'll tell you, uh, I mean, like in terms of you know, what I mean. That look at the case of Russia. That Russia today has the second highest number of billionaires in the world which is way disproportionate to its economic size. That its, econ uh, that its economy is, 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 like, is like a fraction of the global economy, but when it comes to billionaires, it's right at the, right at the top. And, and it's uh, at the top after the US, uh, at the second highest number of billionaires in the world and the highest for any emerging market, even though its, its economy is, 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 is a fraction of the size of the American economy. Uh, but I mean, there are many problems with that. Uh, not just into, uh, in terms of like the disproportionate wealth, 
It's also got to do that if you look at the list of millionaires uh, in the world, Russia does not even feature in the top 15. So second highest in the world when it comes to billionaires. When it comes to millionaires, not even in the top 15. And that tells you something about the structure of the economy, that there's a lot of wealth at the top. It just is not spread out. Now, the problem that, uh, that happens with that is it almost leads to a backlash against economic reforms and opening up of the economy because you think that every time you do that, only a few people are going to benefit. And I'm seeing signs of that in India as well. Uh, and some of the Naxal problems, the insurgency in those areas, some of it is related to the fact that you have, I mean, you have two, uh, like some people who have made billions in that uh, out of the wealth and natural resources, which, which the people feel has not been done due to any genuine, uh, any genuine entrepreneurial talent, but the wealth has been created because of your connections with the government. And that all, you know, leads to a sense of a backlash amongst people. What you want in a sustained economic success story is you want a perception that this has been done on the basis of equal opportunity. So I think that's a real problem, that when you have too much wealth concentration, and if you have the wealth concentration which is taking place uh, in, in sectors uh, where, you know, where it's not got to do with genuine entrepreneurial talent, but got to do with your connections with the government. That's never sort of celebrated. So like in, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we heard that the CEO of Apple got a paycheck of 370 million. I don't think there's much resentment against that because we somehow recognize that what Apple has done is genuinely <laughs> sort of innovative and, and like entrepreneurial. On the other hand, if you end up paying a, a CEO of a bank who, you know, like who, who, who got bailed out by like even a fraction of that, I mean, there's huge resentment against that. You know, you know, because there's a feeling that, I mean, this was not earned or something. And similarly, if you end up, you know, like a sort of billionaire comes out of the commodity space, that, I think that creates that feeling that this has not been done because of genuine entrepreneurial talent, but because of government connections. So that's a problem. And the second thing is that you want, in, at the heart of any capitalist system, is this process of creative destruction, that you want sort of new billionaires to come up. So in India, one of the issues I have is, that like in India, a lot of new billionaires came up <coughs> out of the technology sector, out of the manufacturing sector. Last five years, there's been no churn or virtually no churn in the billionaires index, that you got only one new name in the top 10. And what that again tells you is that it's, you know, is that only a few people like are being able to create new wealth. And, and it's not been created by many new uh, faces. And this is not what China has done. This is not what Korea has done in its success stories. You know, like, uh, like in, uh, you know, where, you know, where wealth is sort of created, but there's huge churn. In China, over the last five years, maybe that's too much of an extreme, of the top 10 billionaires, there are nine new names. And in Korea, similarly, I mean, what we have seen is that the, their share of the total wealth in the economy is quite manageable. See, so that creates a perception that there's not somebody who's like hijacking the system or a group of people, but there's a you know, much greater sense of equality out there in those, in those economies, or equality of opportunity. Uh, because equality can often mean in terms of you know, just redistribution, which we know can retard growth, especially if it's done at a premature stage. But that means in terms of redistribution. So those are, the, I mean, you know, some of the rules of the road that you know, uh, you know that I that I've tried to come up with in the in the book. Then, the, of course, there's a lot of politics as well, which I speak about in the book. Like one thing which I find is that as far as economics is concerned, you got to take the political factors into account. 
and one sort of you know very like simple rule that I uh, you know based on all my observations was that a political leader at the top typically has a lifespan of about seven to eight years. They look at the biggest uh, successful stories, you know whether it's got to do with Thatcher, it's got to do with Mitterrand, etc. About seven to eight years. After that, they all begin to stumble. They lose their charisma or they lose the touch with the people, and that I think is something which we need to keep in mind uh, uh, with even Putin. That had Putin retired in 2008, I think that no matter what we may say about him, he may have gone down in history as one of the great leaders who helped rescue Russia. Instead, today, uh, for every day that he stays in office, it's a law of diminishing returns and rising unpopularity. And, and that's true, because if you look at the likes of Mahathir Mohammed, they did very well in the first decade in power. Second decade was, you know, I mean, was a disaster, and they're remembered not that fondly today. Now, there will be outliers. There will be a Lee Kuan Yew who will be in office for 27 years. But you know, those are outliers. The outliers don't make your base case. Uh, mostly, that if you have political leaders who are trying to cling on to office for too long, you want to be worried about that country. Because you know that they're not into maximizing the country's gains. They're more into controlling their own interests as far as that nation is concerned. The other sort of like simple rule of the road for me is that you want to sort of invest in countries almost when they, have their, when they have their back to the wall, which is that they tend to reform the most you know, when they have their back to the wall, not when they're cruising along. Because, when, because that's the mistake many emerging markets make, which is that they'll carry on some reforms, they'll get some success for a decade, and then they'll think that this success can be taken for granted and they'll stop reforming. So people forget that as far as China is concerned, Korea is concerned, all these countries reformed systematically. China every five years had a new plan about what they're going to do to open their economy up, what are they going to do to try and, and like reform. So when I put all these rules of the road together, the, I mean like for me the disappointing thing is that some of the large economies uh, you know, like are at the wrong end of expectations and don't quite fit these rules that I'm speaking about here. In China, I think the problem is one purely of expectations, that people are uh, refusing to sort of give up on the idea that they have reached a middle-income country and so therefore the growth rate needs to slow down. So expectations remain quite high. I think as far as Russia and Brazil are concerned, their problems are more deep-rooted, which is that they benefited incredibly from a commodity boom of the previous decade. And my own feeling here is that commodity prices are now bound to decline for a couple of reasons. That if you look at the long-term history of commodity prices, they follow a very predictable pattern, which is one decade up, two decades down. And this is because human ingenuity, technological innovation always trump any increase in demand. And, and urbanization has taken place. Now people tell me this is an exceptional time. And you know, like every time appears to be exceptional. Every time this time is different. And yet you find that nothing changes, that, that these factors tend to trump everything else. And at the same time, China today accounts for 30 to 60% of demand for most materials. And if China slows down, as I think it will, to being a more mature economy, I think its commodity demand will slow down disproportionately because the intensity of growth in China for commodities is much higher on the upside. And so therefore, when things slow down, I think that the, the consumption of commodities will fall disproportionately. So, you, so the problem for Brazil and Russia is that they've just had that one big decade for commodity uh, uh, price increases. And now a lot of supply is coming on stream. The reason why commodity prices follow this pattern of two decades down, one decade up, 
is that for two decades down, it's obvious what goes on. But the one decade up is typically because in those two decades down, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they don't, uh, that after a long period of low prices, they don't produce that much in terms of new investments. And so when some new demand comes along the way, it takes them a while to adjust for it and to get new production going again. And so I think that's what happened with the commodity boom of the previous decade, that after 80s and 90s when commodity prices kept following, very new little investment came on. But now a lot of new investment is coming on at the same time when demand is showing some signs of slowing down out of China. And the problem with commodities is once you turn the supply on, you can't just turn it off. I mean, you've built it and it sort of has to run for a while. And the only way that you clear it then is by keep lowering prices over a period of time. And that's what's happened as far as commodities are concerned in terms of just the huge price increases of the past uh, decade where commodities have gone up 10 to 20 times, depending which, which, commodities, we which commodities do you particularly mean? Which ones? Well, I think this, uh, that this applies across the board mm -hmm. because I think that uh, this but is true for everything. Yeah, I mean, minerals, food. everything. I mean, like this rule applies to it, but the degree can vary. Mm -hmm. So, example, if you look, uh, like, like oils are a bit better than this, but like uh, over a long period of time, the average price of commodities in real terms has declined by 1% a year. And, and now there are some variation across that, but generally when compared to stocks, bonds, other investments, commodities tend to be the worst investment. Can you wrap up in five yeah, minutes? Yeah, sure. So in, terms of, so like in terms of coming up with the countries that I sort of like in terms of breakout nations, uh, as I mentioned, that I have a problem with this concept of brick because of expectations and low commodity prices. On India, like I have a more nuanced view because I think that India has a low per capita income and yet the policy making there is not supporting high growth out there. But there are, but there are enough places you know, which, are, which I think can do uh, uh, well in terms of expectations, beating expectations. Those include countries such as, I think, uh, like, like some of the Southeast Asian countries. I think Philippines is staging some sort of a comeback under new political leadership after being lost out in the wilderness for 30 to 40 years. I think Indonesia is still a commodity economy that works, and the only uh, commodity economy that I know, the major ones where investment rates are actually increasing and are above 30%, unlike Brazil and Russia, where it's below 20%. I think that Thailand too has some you know, like signs of coming back after you know, being out in the dumps because they're addressing the problem there of inequality where just a few people in Bangkok did very well and the rest of the country did not do that well. I think in Eastern Europe, I feel quite optimistic about Poland. Uh, it's, a, it's a very solid economy. I think Czech too uh, has very little debt. Both Poland and Czech enjoy what I call the sweet spot in Europe, which is that they're not part of the common currency and yet they're part of EU. So they enjoy the institutional advantages of being part of the EU but are not locked in by a common currency and did not accumulate massive amounts of debt as did uh, uh, Poland, uh, I mean, as did the southern and the uh, peripheral countries in uh, Europe by having a common currency and very low interest rates. Then there's a whole fascinating world out there called the frontier world. Uh, and I think there are lots of interesting opportunities out there from Nigeria to Sri Lanka uh, because these are sort of off the radar map of most people. Nigeria, you know, like uh, surprises many people. But my whole point is that, you know, you know, like out there is that they at last have a leader who, who's at least somewhat honest. Because I mean, like I said, this long history where, they, you know, where so much wealth has been pillaged in that, in that, in that economy that, that 
despite their oil bounty, they've not made much out of it. And I think in Sri Lanka is a, you know, I mean, like a, a small example, but an, an interesting example that once an economy sort of uh, goes through a massive civil conflict, then it can enjoy a peace dividend. And that's what you know, Sri Lanka, I think, is set to enjoy over the next few years. Uh, but my whole point here is not about so much about forecasting as to take you through this journey across these different countries, trying to get, tell you about how we see the world from a, as an investor, as a, as a journalist, in like about which economies may do well, uh, and, and what are the rules of the road that we are following. And I'm quite open-minded and flexible to changing my mind on some of these economies rather than hanging on to forecasts. But I think that the journey here is more important than the destination. But to summarize, the big idea here is that the previous decade was a freaky decade in that, in that, in that how the rising tide of global liquidity lifted every single emerging market and gave rise to a lot of myths out there and fads. But I think that now in this world, uh, you know, where growth in general is slower and liquidity or risk capital which is available is, 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 is more scarce now, you've got to differentiate. You've got to pick your winners and you've got to pick your losers. And as that old Latin American proverb goes, and this is something which I think policymakers need to follow, that when there is no wind, row. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, we have a bit of time, maybe 20 minutes or so, for um, comments and questions. Um, let me just say, by way of beginning, that I very much share your um, belief that the 2000s was a freaky, a freaky decade, as you put it. And the point is made very starkly, I think. If you ask the question, uh, in the two centuries, more than two centuries, so not since the Second World War, but going right back to the Industrial Revolution, how many um, non-Western countries have become what we would call industrialized countries with the, the per capita income roughly of Western Europe and North America and the same sort of income distribution? How many? The answer is six, at most six. You have to stretch it to get six, to include Israel, for example, and also to include Singapore. Um, so uh, this is to, to make the point that economic development, sustained economic development, is really, really difficult. And I think that the statistics that you gave on the proportion uh, of countries um, that, that have grown at more than 5% uh, for more than three decades um, a very small number have grown for 5% or more for more than three decades. I think that uh, makes the same basic point. Economic development is really difficult and um, then there are moments when there's a kind of mania that takes hold and suddenly everybody thinks that economic development is really easy. Everybody's going, all the countries are going to grow fast and um, and it's in particular because of market liberalization. That's the standard argument for when uh, growth takes off. It's because of market liberalization. But as we have seen in the 2000s, it was really because of uh, rather different mechanisms. In any case, um, so who would like to open? Yes. Could you just identify yourself? And uh, my name is Ramesh Kumar. I'm 
Just there's a there's a microphone. My name is Kamal Jitsing Sood. I'm a publisher in London. Uh, I've read, I heard with interest your talk, and also saw your program on NDTV, which is very similar to what we discussed here today. Uh, the one thing which comes out starkly in this thing is that this appears to be a investor's memorandum. Where to invest? Now, do we do we think? that the world economic or emerging market growth is going to be determined by international investors or domestic savings. The country like India, where domestic savings play a huge role, uh, saw its growth decline from 9% to 6.9%. The 2% difference can probably be attributed to reduction in demand in the West. So is India, has India's growth has suffered because of India's internal policies or because of global condition. Similarly in China, the growth was determined primarily by domestic savings and massive inflow of Chinese overseas capital. Right? So there are reasons for this to, to continue or not to continue for whatever else. But the question is, are we looking at growth from the development of the increase in standard of living in the various countries or from the perspective of the international investor. For whatever you say for international, uh, international investor, whatever conclusion you've drawn is very good. But how does it help growth based on internal policies of the country? Okay, great. Now I think Sorry. that you know, first the, yeah. that the two of them go hand in hand. So I totally agree with you that, that you can attribute India's economic slowdown over the past year or so to international factors. But the problem in India was that, that they attributed the acceleration in 2003 to uh, domestic factors and not to international factors. So I think that's the important point as far as India is concerned, that the, that the acceleration in growth in 2003 onwards happened because of international factors, and the deceleration from 2009-2010 onwards is also happening uh, due to like, international factors. Now, regarding the fact that is this an investor's memorandum or a general thing, I think the two really go hand in hand, which is that investors can't, you know, like, don't invest in a vacuum. Uh, we're also looking for sustained economic performance. And over the last decade, what we saw is broadly, now there are some exceptions, broadly, if you got a country's economic growth rate right, you made a lot of money in that country. The higher the growth rate, the better you did. So I think the two of them sort of went hand in hand. But I think your point about domestic savings and domestic money coming back is very important because that's another rule of the road that I come up with in the book, that always watch the feet of the domestic investors, not the foreign investors. Because the domestic businessmen in emerging markets have the best idea of what's happening on the ground. And the foreigners are always the last to quit, not the first to quit. This is a big misconception we have that is foreign capital which flows out. Yes, foreign uh, uh, money does leave, but, but that process has started, I saw this back in 97-98 in East Asia, it started by the domestic investors. And similarly my concerns about Russia today are that, that the FDI is going into Russia, but $80 billion of capital flew out of Russia last year, the highest since 1994. And I'm much more worried about economies where the domestic investors are fleeing rather than where foreign investors are fleeing. House prices in some expensive parts of London are going up thanks to uh, the capital flows from Greece 
and uh, Russia, amongst other places. Uh, yes. Sure. I am Gorang Sai with Asia Research Center here in the city. Uh, I would like to know. I would like to know where do you place political ideology in your scheme of things? Okay. That's a great question because I've done an entire like analysis in the book that does democracy or authoritarian regimes matter more for economic growth. So we looked at it decade by decade for all the high growth cases of countries that grew by more than 5% on an average annual basis. And even though I'm a true sort of liberal and believer like in democracy, the result there was 50-50, which is that we looked at each, de each decade about countries which grew above 5%. And we found that 50% of those were authoritarian regimes and 50% of those were democracies. And we found about 124 cases over the past, over the past three decades. So what matters here is, is, is the quality of leadership, not the political system. So for every China that succeeds as a command and control economy, or you think it's succeeding because of that, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to point out to you one exact opposite case of late, let's say, Vietnam, which tried to ape the Chinese model and have instead like, ended up with 20% inflation and 5% growth. Because, because, uh, because with command and control economies, you, you can make a decision and you either set sail the right way or you go completely wrong. There's no feedback mechanism. So the result is 50-50 for political regime. It's all about the quality of leadership is the true objective answer from the study. That's a striking conclusion. Yes. <clears throat> Hi, uh, my name is John Algar. I'm with a London-based private equity firm. My question is really what implications your analysis has for frameworks of global economic policy coordination. Because obviously in 2008, the G8 became the G20, and those invitations were extended based, I guess, broadly on what you classified as uh, conventional whisk wisdom and forecasts that you've critiqued. Uh, so what criteria do you think should be applied for extending invitations to nations to the sort of uh, top table of economic policy coordination? And I suppose uh, leading on from that, more broadly, how do you see uh, global economic governance evolving? I mean, there was recently the, the BRIC convention uh, where I know the keynote speaker was your, your best mate, Jim O'Neill. Um, so do you, do you see more clusters of emerging uh, nations uh, trying to uh, coordinate uh, their own policy. Yeah, I mean, I just feel that uh, uh, I'm not a big believer in this policy coordination idea. And I think that this is something which is, uh, and I can, and I, I mean, I, um, like, although like, uh, I'm a bit wary of making forecasts, I'm quite convinced that this brick is going to fall apart as a policy coordination uh, tool by, you know, in the next few years. Because the, because the interests are very different here, you know, which is the fact that China is in a different league, right, in terms of its wealth, its per capita income, uh, uh, and so like its size and, uh, you know, like, uh, is very different. So you know, whereas in India, Russia, Brazil are, are like similar in terms of their size, but their interests are very different. Like Brazil and Russia want to see high commodity prices, India wants to see lower commodity prices. So I think that the scope for policy coordination to me does, uh, does, like, appears to be quite limited. And I don't see much scope for this increasing. And I think this BRICS summit is going to pretty much disintegrate in the next three, five years. So they're gonna, you know, because my entire thesis here is that countries are going to go in their own direction. That this thing of coming together worked when everyone was doing well. Right? So I mean, what's that? I think that Tolstoy line, right? That every happy family is happy in the same way. and like. You know, like or or like not, uh, or like unhappy in 
in uh, in like different ways or something. So I think that's what's gonna that is like in a slower growth world, everyone's gonna go back to thinking more about themselves rather than engaging in any policy coordination. Um, there was a, somebody over here. Hi, I'm, I'm Adeline Jabal and I'm currently a strategy consultant. Um, you briefly touched on this earlier and it also refers to the gentleman's question, but to what extent do you think countries such as Russia and Brazil um, owe their disappointing performance to policy making rather than commodities? No, I think that, um, I, don't, uh, I think what, what the commodity boom did is to sort of, you know, like make them believe that they could take it easy in terms of reforms. So look at the case of Russia. A decade ago, I would go to Russia. The price of oil was $25 a barrel. And they would be paranoid that what would happen to them if the price of oil went to $15 a barrel. Because they had just come out, uh, come out, uh, come out of the crisis of 98, where the price of oil had gone to $10 a barrel. And they had suffered a default. Today, the Russian budget will not balance at a price of oil of above $110 a barrel. So I think that what, you know, what this does is... Sorry, do you mean above or below? I mean, like, at, at $110 a barrel, the budget just about balances. Uh -huh. And below that? It's like negative. Yeah. You know, so this is, what the, so like, this is what's happened in terms of, you know, that, 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 that they've got so hooked on to high prices that, that if you get any negative surprise on that, it, uh, it will really sort of, you know, lead to a lot of economic problems, I think. So I think that the, what the commodity prices have done is to have made them remarkably complacent because everyone believes that the, that the price of, you know, like oil will sustain at these levels and, and, and they think like it'll keep going higher. So policy making has become increasingly complacent, I feel, in this environment. Yes, yes. Hi, my name is Karthik and I work Hi. in consumer finance. Uh, my question for you is around uh, I guess it's a borderline personal question, but uh, in your thought process, does it, is it harder for you to be objective about a country like India where you grew up as against countries where you, you go for one week trips and are more of an observer? Yeah, I think that's a legitimate sort of uh, like, you know, point to make. So therefore, like, India is the only country in the book where I'm 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> because everything on the, on the other sort of countries, I, I try and make categorical assertions. And it could well be because of that. That, that maybe like I see the situation a bit too closely and so therefore my mind's a bit sort of confused. But having said that, I was in India last week, you know, like, uh, you know, for the book tour and I, and I, I got a lot of flack for saying it's 50-50 because, you know, people said that that's too pessimistic. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's something I, I'm very self-aware of. Yes. Well, you said that we must not create... Could you just identify I am yourself? K. Mahesh. I am a student of law in LSE and a civil servant from India. Uh, you said that we should not create a kind of a welfare... Uh, we should not undertake welfare measures uh, till we have a kind of a good economic growth. So what should be the point? What should be the point at which you should introduce those welfare measures? Because the ruling elite the beneficiaries of economic growth would not like that to happen. They'll say, okay, please wait for another decade, wait for another year, and the poor will continue to suffer. Thank you. Yeah, I think that, I mean, uh, there's a lot of academic work which has been done on this, but, you know, typically government spending, you know, like across the world tends to map per capita income levels. So it's a steady progression. And I think like in India's case, I mean, like, so it's not a, like a particular point. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a steady progression with higher income levels, you get more welfare spending. 
But in India's case, what happened, I think that's what you're referring to, and, and which has been my criticism of India, is that their government spending has increased tremendously over the last five, seven years. That it's, that it's increasing at levels which are way above you know, uh, what can be sustained. So relative to their per capita income level, uh, like in India, government spending as a share of GDP is quite high today. And it was not that high seven, eight years ago. So it's a, it's a steady progression. You know, like in terms of that government spending as a share of GDP, um, you know, this is basic stuff, at a per capita income level of $10,000 should be X, at, at you know, $20,000 should be Y. But like in India's case, what's happened is that at a, at a very low per capita income level of $1,500, government spending as a share of GDP has gone up to levels which are much higher than what should be for such countries. Including the Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so I mean, my whole point, you know, that China never introduced these things uh, yeah, at similar per capita income levels, because China's sort of entire motivation was to grow very quickly, and they took a lot of risks to do so. So you got mass migration of labor, which took place from rural to urban areas, with the Chinese policymakers realizing that that's the way you, 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 uh, that you increase productivity. Okay, I think sure. just, we'll just take two more questions. Yes. Just, just wait for the mic. Oh, yeah, sure. uh, Toby you seem fairly confident on the commodity super cycle sort of coming to an end. Um, I suggest that we kind of put this week in the diary, um, especially <laughs> if next week um, both French and Greece sort of vote pretty adamantly against austerity and there's a big unwinding of all those contracts. <laughs> Yeah, could be. I mean, I don't know how to say that. I mean, like, you know, my, my confidence is based on what I'm seeing on the ground in terms of what I'm hearing from different sort of, you know, sources. Uh, but, I mean, like, uh, could I be wrong? Of course, I could be. There's no, there's no sort of guarantee with any of these things. But this is my best guess at present based on all the evidence that I'm seeing in terms of what's happening to, uh, like, inventories, what's happening to production, and what's happening to demand. I think that Jeremy Grantham, who um, has uh, sponsored the Grantham Institute, on the environment here at LSE um, certainly believes that in the longer term, several decades out, the longer term trend is for constantly rising commodity prices, but he's basing it on environmental uh, constraints. Um, yes, I think we can take two more questions, but we'll take them in together. Yes. Hi, thank you. My name is uh, Eunice Ullerberg. I wanted to ask about the role of politics in your analysis. You mentioned it briefly towards the end, and Professor Wade also mentioned something about growth rates since the Industrial Revolution. And in reference to Africa and most of Asia, uh, there's been some pretty dramatic shifts over the last 20 years or so in terms of political structures. And, and, and speaking of Africa in, in the 60s is very different from speaking in Africa about Africa today, simply because of the role of you know, the post-colonial period and so on and so forth. So could you speak a bit more about how you see the role of politics and changing political structures, influencing uh, the sustainability of growth over time. But, uh, uh, yeah. okay. Do you want to take that yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, like, very yeah. briefly, that I, uh, like, I'm not sure like, I have anything new to add to you know, what I said currently, which is that it's basically that even the last decade, we've seen like, increased democracy across the world. And yet the, ra I mean, the rate in terms of you know, where you've seen very high growth rates has been 50-50. It's not changed you know, compared to the 80s or compared to the 1990s. So even the more African economies have, have become high growth economies over the past decade, in terms of authoritarian versus democratic structure, like it hasn't changed. But I'm aware that a lot of academic work has been done
to show that once you surpass a per capita income level of more than $10,000 or so, then you need much more democracy to be able to sustain economic growth. So I'm aware of that, but from my observation that uh, is the fact that, e that even the past decade, as uh, like democracy has spread, <coughs> there, uh, including in Africa, the split between which, uh, which regime is more conducive for economic growth remains 50-50. Okay, and last question. Thank you. Uh, I'm, um, I work in the uh, investment bank sector. Let's go back to some specific breakout nations you mentioned, the two Central Eastern European ones and uh, Nigeria, which I found interesting because it's unconventional to me. Yeah. Uh, how does that set against the super trends that you also mentioned? For instance, the commodity boom being basically over. Uh, I, 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 like most people, think of Nigeria as basically an oil country, and if oil prices are not going to go up, how can that country, even with its better governance, do well? And in the case of Poland and Czechoslovakia, or, sorry, Czech Republic, uh, they're in a very tough neighborhood. On the one hand, the EU, and on the other hand, uh, the other country that's going to suffer, as you say, Russia, from the uh, lack of the commodity boom going forward. So I'm, I'm, quite I'm not quite sure how these are yeah. breakout nations, given the uh, countering the, um, the macro trends you, you, uh, you, you mentioned. Thank no, you. I mean, like, that's a valid point. But if you look at all the countries that I've listed, for, uh, one apart from, uh, you know, that uh, it's hard to force fit everything, like, into one, you know, like, into just one theory, you know, which is the, you know, the world is all about, you know, commodity sort of, uh, that, the, that only the commodity importers will benefit and the commodity exporters will not. On, on balance, if you, uh, the skew of the breakout nations is in favor of commodity importers in general. But I can't apply, I don't want to force fit everything. Now, Nigeria's case, it's very interesting that Nigeria, you know, uh, uh, has always had oil, but, uh, but it was, in fact, poorer for many years after it discovered oil than, you know, uh, than when it didn't have oil. And I think that, so, in, like, in Nigeria's case, my entire point is that, that the story there is not just about oil. That, that the fact that they've at last, have, because if they had, because if it was only about oil, then they should have been a developed nation by now because they've had oil for such a long period of time now. But it's about political leadership. At last, they seem to have political leadership which seems to be somewhat honest. And at such a low per capita income level, they can you know, get away with it. Whereas like in Russia, when your per capita income level is much higher, you need to produce uh, some rich goods as well. So I think that's the difference I have between Nigeria and as far as Russia is concerned. Now, I agree that Poland, Czech, and are in a very tough neighborhood. But to me, it's about expectations about breakout nations. That look at Poland, right? Like, very tough neighborhood, yet the, the only economy in Europe that did not contract in the 2008 and 2009 recession. The only economy. So I think that there is a lot of resilience out there because of the fact that they have a pretty strong domestic consumer base uh, out there, and they haven't accumulated the kind of debt that the other countries have, ac have accumulated. And for them to grow at 4% should be achievable uh, even in a year like this. So I think it's about resilience. Now, I, I mean, like the easy thing for me to have done, done based on my view on commodities would have been all commodity importers up, all commodity exporters down. But I think that that is one factor as I look into a, you know, like a whole host of factors about determining which will be breakout nations. Okay, well, um, two final points. One, we shouldn't extrapolate forward from this, as you said, freaky decade of the 2000s um, developing countries in particular are going to go through a, a period of much slower growth, I think. I think you're right on that. And secondly, um, there's very little policy coordination um, between the 
developing countries. In fact, the most accurate way to describe the world in terms of global governance or interstate governance is either the G7, because the G7 are still moderately cohesive, or indeed the G0, um, because even the US is, is in a pretty weak state in terms of global leadership. Okay, well, thank you very much. That was a terrific talk, and I do recommend the book, which is on sale for only £25 outside. Thank you. Thank you very much.